This is Structure, the podcast. I'm Sam Ward. And I'm Michelle Rose. We talk to the designers and minds behind the most creative products in the outdoor industry. The Structure podcast is brought to you by Cordura Brand. If you've worked in the industry at all, you know about Cordura Fabrics. You know about their durability and their abrasion resistance, but what you may not know about are their designer collaborations. Our guest, Douglas Davidson of the Brown Buffalo, is launching a bag and pack collaboration with Cordura at Outdoor Retailer Summer Market. His line uses premium Cordura fabrics to update classic pieces like backpacks, totes, and messenger bags. These collaborations are an important opportunity to share knowledge and push the boundaries of what's possible. Cordura has collaborated with Alex Waldman of Rafa, Structure Studio, and Dana Gleason of Mystery Ranch. They are committed to helping designers see their visions become reality. Find out more at Cordura.com. I'm really excited about our guest tonight. Yeah, me too. I first met our guest, Douglas Davidson, back when we worked together at the North Face, but I've really gotten to know him through his involvement with our design conference, Structure Event. He has so many layers of experience and inspiration throughout his career path that resonate with a lot of us in this industry. I'm really glad we get to share more of his story with our listeners today. Absolutely. I really appreciate what he has to say about being diplomatic when you're working with large teams. That's such a crucial skill for designers to develop. And the story of how he developed it at an early age is really great. Yeah. And what he has to say about the difference between a good designer and a great designer is super interesting and important to designers in any discipline. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to it. Douglas, welcome to the Structure Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. We want to start with talking about you know, the path to design. You know, I've been watching your social media posts and you've been really busy setting up your, your new studio for Brown Buffalo and posting a lot of great things about that. And I really want to talk about that. We'll dig into it later. But first, I want to start with a little bit of your background and your design path. Like, how long have you been designing professionally? And how did it all kind of start for you? You know, I always say that I started designing professionally um, in 2005. I think everything before that was kind of like the, I almost feel like it was like college, you know, and um, because I didn't go to college, I guess, yeah, to back up even more, I didn't go to college. I wasn't professionally trained. I, I didn't necessarily have the um, the formal training, I guess you would say. And so up until that point, it was really just trying to figure out what design was because I didn't even know it as a definition. I didn't even know it as a, um, I mean, to be totally transparent, like, when I was 21, I think I finally learned who Pablo Picasso was or Salvador Dali. And, you know, a lot of these things were things that I, I think other people were kind of privy to, to, and maybe it was their, their social background or kind of um, the schooling that they had had. And for myself, I grew up um, in Los Angeles in a small town called Whittier. And we had in our high school a, a mechanical drafting class and we had, you know, an art class and the only class that I could look back on and really say it's what has been the foundation of my education was mechanical drafting. And um, so to kind of fast forward where design kind of really started was when I met a guy, his, his name is Jerome Mage and he owns a studio called Mage Design in LA. Um, he was like the first real designer I, I had ever met. He just, he grew up in Paris um, or out on the outside of Paris and he went to school in Paris so he was really influenced around fashion, but he was really also influenced around the motocross industry and the motorsports industry. I remember meeting him for the first time and he had this like white chinchilla jacket on and like like uh, kind of fitted jeans. And this was like 1998, 99. And, um, and he had this like crazy slicked hair and I was sitting there just like, who is this guy? It was such a trip to meet him because everyone else was too cool you know and there were there was nobody was really putting themselves out like that um but jerome was kind of the creative mastermind behind spy sunglasses and clive backpacks um a couple motocross companies mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. quicksilver watches and it, the list goes on and so him and i we struck up a conversation and in 2003 he had hired me on uh, but at that time, I was also learning a lot about sketching. I was learning a lot about fashion. And when I say fashion, a, a lot more of on the um, 
avant-garde side because we were heavily influenced by um, Ralph Simons, Helmet Lang. At the time, you know, Yoji Yamamoto, um, Carl Lagerfeld, Yvonne St. Laurent. Like, that was kind of like, you know, even all the all the vintage stores, too, because there's a lot of vintage stores in L.A. that people still don't know about that you need to set appointments for. Um, not necessarily all the American heritage stuff, but when you get into, like, Dior and you get into all the vintage Dior um you know, dresses and, and, and just different, different items like that. You can go up to these places that it's just a doorbell and you have to ring the doorbell and basically set an appointment. And if, if you're lucky and, um, and you can go through their entire library of, of dresses and things like that. And that was something that Jerome and I really liked to do when we were in LA together and, and visit, you know, go to fashion shows, just get inspired by some things that probably weren't in our normal line. And uh, how long had you been working in the industry at that point? I would say since 1996. 1996 to 2003 was um, really just trying to figure out where my feet were. And I really didn't know what was going on. I had a friend in in the mid-90s who took an interest in me and um, really kind of started showing me around the different denim houses in Los Angeles. And the way I started was inside the warehouse and I basically just worked my way up. I think I just took an interest at the time of like, what is that? What's going on? And, um, my friend Mark was just like, Hey, why don't you take this, uh, bolt of fabric up to LA to so-and-so's place? And I was like, all right. So I'd go up there and I'd be stuck there for an hour or two. And so I just started asking questions and maybe somebody there that somebody was cutting or somebody who was working in the dye house, they would just bring me over and they would start explaining you know, a little bit about the background and me being young and impressionable, I was just asking questions, super naive and, um, you know, just trying to play dumb as much as possible. And, you know, I've always tried to kind of play that role. And, you know, it seems like people like to talk a little bit more. You know, as time went on, I got to learn more about cutting houses and especially more on a domestic level and, you know, where you're buying your thread, where you're buying your your sewing machines and just different things like that down here in in, uh, Orange County. So by the time I got to um, to 2005, I'd had a couple good jobs in between. I, I'd worked for Quicksilver and worked for Burton Snowboards, and um, and then in 2005, I really got bored working um, for a com- one company, not necessarily for that company, but just for one company. And I had friends who were becoming design directors, and I was having friends who were owners, and everybody was calling me, and I just made this list just inside my makeshift studio at home. And I realized that with that list, I could probably take on a, quite a bit more work and, um, and actually be able to pay my bills, you know. And so I took the gamble and I just, you know, I, I figured out a formula or, or a kind of a business model that I just needed to make 30000 that year. And, and that was my goal, $30,000. And then I can go snowboarding and travel a few times a year and try to make the most of it. And the next thing you know, I gave my notice. And by that Monday morning or Friday afternoon, I got a phone call from Nike uh, from their equipment division. And they asked me if I could be there on Monday to work on a project. And that kicked off. And next thing you know, you know, Burton asked me to basically do the same job that I was doing in-house as a contractor. Um, so that was for Burton Snowboards, Gravis Footwear, and Analog. And then they had just recently purchased Channel Island Surfboards. So they would asked me to design all the bags and accessories in those areas. And Burton had also asked me to uh, design some of the outerwear and some snowboard boots and things like that. You know, And uh, that was pretty exciting because I hadn't worked on that product up until that point. Um, shortly thereafter, Vans came on as a client. And so Vans asked me to design all their accessories and bags, pretty much similar to what Burton was asking me to do. Um, and then the, so that's about six months into it. And I realized I'm like, okay, so at that point I'd made my goal financially. I'm sitting there. I'm like, well, what am I going to do for the rest of the the year? And I'm kind of scratching my head like, well, I guess this is kind of a real business, you know? And, and so I had to, uh, kind of buckle down and, um, Ben Pruce, who was, um, I forget what his position was, but he was, I think he was like the VP of product or marketing at Adidas in Nuremberg. And uh, he had reached out to me and basically offered me the same uh, opportunity that I had with Burton and Vans and um, to design all their bags and accessories for for uh, Adidas Europe and Japan. And um, 
yeah, so I did that from Vermont. And then, you know, the clients just started stacking up from there and it kept on going and going. So obviously I got a real insight to all these different brands and I, I got to work with all their different business um, um, categories. And, and it, it was nice because each brand is definitely different, you know, and Nike probably is the, um, they're obviously the pinnacle of all the brands of how they're set up. And, you know, you can you can see when you're working inside a, a product meeting and your merchandisers graduated from Harvard or your merchandisers graduated from, you know, Wharton and, uh, and you could see what they're bringing to the table because they're obviously studying so much on different case studies of businesses. And, um, and they're really bringing able to bring, they're being able to bring that experience to those meetings. Um, and so it's, it's just a different, you know, it's a totally different lens than maybe I would get somewhere else. Um, but at the same time, you know, that works for that brand. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for another brand. Yeah. So you were freelancing at that point when Nike called and all the, the clients started stacking up. And it sounds like um, it just sounds like a lot of people had the same needs and there weren't. Uh, I mean, they, a lot of people were coming to you. It sounded like they just really were looking for people, really good people. Absolutely. I mean, the the I would say the key word or the key phrase for that year specifically was people who specialize in product, like a certain product. They didn't want the generalist. They didn't want the person who said, Hey, I could design everything. I think they had been through that era and you know, you'd get the designer coming in saying, you know, can you design a shoe? Yeah, I could design a shoe. Could you design a bag? Yeah, you can design a bag. Can I design apparel? Yeah. And the reality is maybe they could do one of those things really well and everything else was kind of mediocre. And, um, and for me, I had already made a conscious decision that I was going to be someone, I, w- I was going to specialize in bags and travel goods, accessories. And that's kind of how my career had started. I just saw a real big gap there. And I was, I was also frustrated with bags in general. I was just frustrated in the, the design because, um, you know, to, to, to back up and just into my family history, I grew up with my family traveling. We went on cruises all the time. And to see what I'm doing today, it all kind of comes full circle. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, was there was there a key event or events that shaped that that path? Um, you know, you talked about some of the mentors, and I know you've had you had a few. Um, but but what are those key events that that set you on this path to at least being interested in design, even if you weren't sure you were going to do packs or bags yet? Well, I think there's definitely some key milestones. I think, like I was mentioning before, I think traveling um, just as a family, and those were some of the happiest times of my life. And I think traveling as a family and really trying to experience all these different cultures. And, you know, I was like between five and 18 years old, I was traveling through South South America and through Central America and, and through Mexico. And I've seen all these different, yeah, I mean, literally these different cultures on a daily basis and um, in these different environments. And so I think that was definitely one key milestone. And I also think my mom teaching me how to sew was showing me a tool that I was totally foreign to, and then I was able to use and and I was able to kind of embrace and, and bring it to my life. And then fast forward from there, art was kind of a, you know, an undertone throughout my life. But in 1995, I met a, um, I met a friend up in Santa Barbara, and I, I was living up there for a couple of years. His name was Ryan uh, Posebon. He's now the um, creative director over at Vans. And we became friends, and it turned out he skateboarded, I skateboarded. So we all started skating together. And he um, had told me about this project he was working on. He was like, you know, I'm starting this backpack company. It's called Pipsqueaks Backpacks. And I was just like, oh, cool. You know, I didn't really know what that what it was. but And um, it turned out it was a... a a backpack company that was formed from skateboarding and it turned out being a pretty big deal, you know, at the time. And for me, I just looked at it. I was so inspired. I was like, wow, look at this guy. He just started, like he started making this thing. And it was like, if you can rewind all the way back to the first time you ever saw something being made and it was by somebody who's probably close to a similar age, you're just shocked and odd. And you're just like, wow, how is this person doing this? And so Again, I was really impressionable, impressionable, and I just thought, wow, I want to do something like that. And I think that's when it, 
for me, it just clicked. But it wasn't until years later until I realized I could draw or somebody told me I could draw. And, um, you know, somebody gave me the opportunity to design some product to rewinding back to that experience going, I'm going to try to design a bag. And so I went and tried, I remember the first bag ever designed. I, I, um, it's funny because I, I almost make fun of myself now, but it was all just based off the computer and, uh, it was just, you know, 2d, it, I didn't draw it, you know, by hand. I just drew it in illustrator and I remember sending the tech pack and what I got back, it, it looked exactly like what I'd sent and which was just, you know, some ro- weird robot looking thing. <laughs> and, you know, it taught me a good lesson too, you know, and, um, it also opened up a lot of doors. So that really helped me kind of form almost like a, a point of view around product. And I'm sure I had some kind of egos just being young, but you know, I definitely, I definitely was still uh, hesitant about having a point of view just because I knew I didn't really understand all the tools and, um, or the terminology too. Yeah. That's not something you develop until a bit later, at least back right. in those days when you're learning on the job. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and it also, I mean, it sounds like you were kind of floating back and forth between equipment and bags and apparel and, you know, just out of, out of that environment, what do you think it was that drew you to, to really focus on bags? I think because I traveled so much, you know, I think that was just, it was kind of simple. It's not really too, too deep. I think I just traveled a lot and I really saw, um, when I traveled, I just, I was kind of frustrated with um, the products that I was using or, or maybe somebody had given to me to test. I think growing up in the skate industry, you already, when you're, when you're a kid and you're growing up around the shop, you're kind of, um, you're belittled, you know, by all the older guys. And um, you're, you're not, you really don't have a voice and you really don't have a, um, you got to kind of learn, I don't know, like the code of ethics, you know, like the kind of the the secret code of skateboarding, which is like, you kind of have to work your way up and you definitely can't show off. You can't like, you can't, uh, it's, it's hard to say. You have to be able you know, to back it up. Explain. Right. Yeah. You got to be able to back it up. And if you speak up too much, you're probably going to get swatted down pretty quick too. Yeah. So having grown up with that my whole life, and I also grew up in an area where there was, um, you know, I grew up in a really Mexican community and where there was a lot of gangs, you know, I mean, and with gangs, you kind of have, again, there's a certain way things are done. And, or if you're walking home, there's certain streets you're walking home, or if you're walking by a certain group, you know, you just got to look them straight in the eye and they'll probably leave you alone. If you put your head down, you're most likely going to get picked on. And so when you're growing up with all these different rules and, and different ways of, you know, people always ask me, you know, like, you do so well with diplomacy inside companies. And I'm like, well, I grew up, I had to grow up and learn diplomacy pretty quick. You're you're watching and listening and learning and figuring it out every step of the way. Every step of the way, you know, because, you know, with senior managers, executives, directors, finance, they're all their own little gangs, right? And they all have their own interests and they all have um, all their own, you know, initiatives for the year. They're trying to protect them or trying to, you know, deliver them, like drive them. And those all are a different form of diplomacy of how you have to work with all those different groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that, that's such a great point because, uh, you know, I was thinking back to what you were saying a second ago about, you know, working as a freelancer with Nike and Adidas and Burton and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, how adaptive you have to be to be successful inside each of those cultures. Cause each of those companies has its own culture, but then you're right. It's like each of those business groups also have their own culture and have to be able to navigate that successfully can be tricky. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you, you really have to look at it. Um, when you're in those situations, I always try to explain to people like, so the anxiety doesn't build up. You just have to pretend you're with, you're talking to one person. You're not talking to a whole entire group of people. You're just trying to focus on one person. If anything, you're just talking to yourself. And that really helps me out, at least with the diplomacy side of things. So you don't get distracted by all the noise around it. Because a lot of these people ask, you know, they bring me on board to to grow their business. You know, and maybe they don't have the expertise in-house, or maybe they just want additional expertise on top of whatever they have already. 
And so for me, I'm really, you know, I'm a client or they're a client. And so I'm having to really come in and, and zero in on really what that, that substance of the problem is and take all the other noise out of the company and, um, and really try to identify how I can kind of contribute at a high level. Yeah, and that's really interesting, too, because what what you're doing in that is this, like you were saying, to keep the anxiety down, it's a survival technique to hone in on connecting with one or two people. But at the same time, it's also a connection. You know, as you're like you were saying, you're talking to one person, but then you're also creating that connection right. with that, you know, that direct connection with that person, whichever person you're focusing on there. And um, that's ultimately what then sells things when you can make that each individual connection. Correct. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, uh, I think the best example for me was, you know, I worked at the North Face uh, for a couple of years. And when I worked there is being able to literally just zero in on senior management, marketing and product, and then, uh, uh, and sourcing and making those, that, that whole machine work as a, as a unit rather than, independently because in that situation it's such a big company that you really do need to kind of zero in and just hold it all together at one time um and making sure that you know you're kind of switzerland at that side too and 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 for me i was trying to um shelter all my designers that work for me from all the noise so they can work at you know a hundred percent and over deliver at that point Rather than once once you get a designer kind of caught up in the noise, you know all the other designers kind of get caught up in the noise too as well, and it turns into uh, um, you know an Eeyore group, and a lot of companies have Eeyore groups where they they kind of thrive on all the the wrong things of the brand or what they can do better, and they think they can solve the problem, and the reality is is their energy is being focused or used in the wrong area, and that's where the manager needs to step in and kind of help that group out working more in a productive way. I want to talk about your design library. You've been known to have a very large collection of bags. And I love that you call it a design library. Um, how did that get started? If I could like literally zero in at a time, it's a conversation I had with a DJ. His name was DJ Radar. I remember having a conversation with Radar and Radar was just like, you know, if you're going to be a designer, like do it like be a hundred percent a designer and we're young we're just like you know probably drinking a few beers and just kind of talking you know out of our ass to tell you <laughs> tell you the truth and those are the best conversations come out at those times yeah you know and i just remember him saying he's like you know he showed me a picture of his his mom's house and the entire living room was records their like bathroom had records in it the hallways had records in it his room had records so the entire like he took over the house with records and I was like, why do you have all these records? He's like, well, you know, a DJ is only as good as their library and how much they can pull from it. What I took away from it, though, was that he's right. Like, you're only as good as what you either you either you're a designer who can retain information really well or you're a designer who needs actual references around them. And I'm the design type of designer who needs reference. There's some designers who are like exceptional at being able to pull from um just their mind. And, um, and for myself, like that's something I cued into when I was younger and I was like, you know, I got to start a design library. And, you know, at first it was these small little items. It was books, I think at, at the beginning, cause that's really only the only thing I could afford. Um, so time went on and then I believe the first backpack I ever received was from Ryan from Pipsqueaks. And, um, that was like the beginning of my design library for bags um, and then slowly I just started picking up little things at garage sales. And over time, you know, I, all of a sudden, you know, you fast forward 15 years and you have 4,000 bags inside a 2,000 square foot warehouse and you're trying to make sense of it all. And some people, you know, I think some people would find out I had this library and they would start sharing, you know, hey, I designed that bag in, you know, 1967 or I designed that bag in the 70s. And they'd share these stories with me. And that was pretty rad to kind of have these people reach out to me um, who I had no idea who they were, but they had somehow learned a little bit about me. Um, and then, you know, you start building these relationships and then they kind of turn you on to someone else and um, who could tell you the whole story about a brand. And they'd do a case study on, you know, a lot of outdoor 
a lot of outdoor folks definitely have know their history on their brands. Um, sporting goods, I wouldn't say unless you were there at the time and you're you're literally building the sporting goods brands, they don't necessarily have that, that history. Um, because Adidas is, you know, the the owners obviously at that time had passed, I believe, and um, and there really isn't a deep history that's been published um, on Adidas, you know somewhat like that the latest book with uh phil knight right right yeah i mean nike i think is is so much about i worked there for a couple years back in the in the mid 90s and at least at that point they were very much about you know their history and celebrating phil and bill bowerman and all those all those guys that were there from the very beginning their origin story is very much a part of their brand and um i think always has been very very much a big part of their dna yeah, absolutely. You know, like when you go in there, they have um, like the little museums around the campus. And for the person who's never been there, it's just like it's a picture of a museum basically curated telling you the history of Nike. So um, so in terms of your library, like what's your criteria for collecting? How do you well, how do you choose what to keep and what to what to pass by? When I first started collecting, I think I was just a hoarder. I think anything anybody was willing to give me, I would just take it. And then, you know, you eventually get to this like point where you're like just literally paying for storage. And, um, I think some of the cues that I, by the time I had edited it down, I actually had a better understanding because when I first started collecting it, I really didn't have good understanding of what bags I wanted to collect and what I wanted to keep and what I wanted to throw away inside there. It's kind of shaped in a U shape and, in the first part of the U-shape, it's all just vintage bags. And so when I say vintage, it's kind of broken up into outdoor sporting goods and um, and a little bit of luxury. And so I keep some of the – it's not like every shape or something like that. It's more about like if there's a fabric or maybe there's a new shoulder strap or there's some kind of patent that was just done at that time. Um, definitely some key silhouettes in there that, I, that, changed, um, that changed everything. I mean – you know, a lot of people don't understand, like with Jansport, um, you know, I had the opportunity to uh, interview Skip Yowell a couple of years ago before he um, passed away. And one of the questions I had for him was, what made you put the zipper on the backpack? And I didn't realize up until that moment that backpacks in general had never had a zipper on it, On you know, as far as like a tombstone style zipper going over the top. Right, right. And this this is in the world, you know? And so he goes, you know, we were just sitting in there and we had a request from a student from the college and um, they had already gone through and I think delivered on one round of production and some of the feedback that had come back was just asking if they could put a zipper on it from a student. And um, so they just tried it, you know, it was that simple. And uh, I think he regretted not putting a utility patent on the zipper around a, a backpack. Um, but just that simple idea, you know, you sit there and you're like, wow, like that one backpack changed everything. You know, for every backpack out there with a the zipper going around it, you got to kind of thank Skip Yowl for um, introducing that into Jansport. Because from that point on, everybody uh, everybody copied, you know, uh, those backpacks. So there's sim- simple little things like that, but you get to learn about all these different craftsmen, you know, um, craftsmen, their styles and the way they produce things. And that's really one of the reasons I picked up a lot of those bags. And some of the bags, I start taking them apart because I do want to learn of, like, what were they thinking when they were trying to produce that at that time? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting that, you know, that you take that time that you, that you are that passionate about it, that you take that time to kind of deconstruct these pieces and and are able to extract that knowledge from them. I think that's that's great. And I remember, you know, Martina, had, I think it, from Swift Industries had tweeted, that like you were taking apart one of their bags and she was like nervous, like, Oh no, what is he, what is he going to find when he, uh, takes apart our bags? And I was like, yeah, but it's like, I, you know, I just see that dedication to the craft and to the, and to the, the, the skills that, that, that comes from that. I, I think that's really amazing. For sure. What I was trying to take from that is I was listening to her podcast and she said she had had some trouble, um, sewing the wax products or reinforcing them. So, I just wanted to take them apart and see how, how they were constructing them because I had a lot of experience working with waxed um, cottons, but I realized they were using 100% cotton because there's also 
you know, now you know this, but maybe some people don't know this, but wax is really just a coating, you know, and so you could put that coating on anything you want. Um, and some people continue to work with just the 100% cotton wax coating, but you could also do it on uh, polyester, nylon blends, um, cotton nylon blends, you know, just so many different types of fabrics and, and um, textures. So that was just a simple solution where it's just like, you know, try a different fabric, but they have the same wax coating. So you can kind of get the same effect. It's just a little bit more, uh, it's more, a little bit more relevant today. Unless you're using leather in the abrasion points. Um, if you're not using leather, then, you know, you probably shouldn't be using it because you're going to just get holes in the fabric pretty quick. This is, and that's the other thing. Pro that, tip. <laughs> yeah. About yeah. having the, uh, the library. I mean, you're, you're very clearly a self-taught person. A self-taught person finds answers in so many different ways mentors learns just constant learning um and that's something that a lot of us you know like who are self-taught i did the same thing growing up um buying vintage clothes because my mom wouldn't buy me all the designer labels so i would uh buy things at the thrift store the vintage store and then take them apart and remake them in different ways and there's so much learning in that deconstructing you know, and seeing what's under the hood, basically, what's inside, how did people put it together, um, that you don't realize that you're actually learning from uh, until later. Oh, absolutely. You know, my mom, my mom taught me a pretty cool, um, <laughs> you're probably going to laugh, but it's a pretty cool skill, which was just thinking. My mom was a teacher from, um, gosh, you know, from right out of college to, to the day she passed away. And the one thing she always taught me was to just slow down and think. And I just, you know, I, I've taken that throughout my whole life. And one of the things that I, I'm definitely, you know, I could stare at something for so long and people will, will break up my train of thought thinking that I, they need to fill the air with, with like noise. And for me, it's like so many times I just like to have silence and just think and really try to think everything through and then have that conversation once I'm able to uh, have a clear message or have a clear, you know, some type of conversation piece. And, um, and there's times, you know, where I remember when I was in my early twenties where I would sit for half a day, just looking at product um, or I would, I'd be in New York and I'd be at the Helmet Lang store and I would just sit there and just stare at like his whole entire collection. And I would go through every single piece of how that collection was built or, you know, I would, um, I remember being in Belgium and, and being at the Walter store in Belgium in Antwerp. And I just remember just studying it and just thinking and just, you know, I'd have my headphones on and just trying to understand how the seamstresses or the pattern makers were trying to construct those garments um, and some of them were really simple, but some of them were pretty complex. But stopping and thinking and really looking at all those products, you know, that's it changes everything. It's the craft. Yeah, because then you can ask questions, too. You know, you can have a conversation versus, like, just being a critic. It's easy to be a critic, but it, being able to contribute to a conversation on a problem-solution level versus just trying to say what's wrong, like, you know, there's, a, there's enough critic designers out there. I, I definitely think, you know, there's a need for more substance. Yeah. I mean, especially when you don't have the luxury of knowing everything that went into something, like all, you don't know all the decision points that led up to that specific end product. Um, you know, it's easy to kind of pick apart something from just the end result. But if you don't know all the decisions that led up to that thing existing in the first place, it, you don't really have a leg to stand on. Right. And we have enough critics right now. Not enough, yeah. uh, not enough focus on good craft and design and too much focus on criticism. Yeah, that, there's, there's a lot of criticism out there, you know, and, and it's not just in design, you know, I think just in general. Mm -hmm. I think with design, sometimes you really got to take a hundred foot view back and then really try to zero in on like, well, what is the problem? You know, like um, if you're designing a rain jacket, you're just trying to stay dry, right? And... Mm -hmm. Rather than trying to get into the functionality, the zipper pull, and you know all the little little knickknacks of things that you can get caught up into, just start at I need to stay dry, and then you break it down to the chemical, right? Because all the products we work with are chemicals. It's not necessarily the fabric that you actually get in hand, um, and probably pull out a good chemist, you know, who knows what they're talking about and knows how to, you know, um, 
manipulate uh, the chemistry of, you know, a, a textile or what makes up a textile, you know, or a molecular cell. And that's being able to, you know, obviously turn into eventually a textile and then kind of back it up and keep backing it up. And then you'll, you obviously always come down to that simple solution. And, um, and all these, you know, all these great people, they start off with these amazing visions, but a lot of the times they just broke it down to the simple solutions of like, well, how do you hold your phone? How's, where's your thumb go? Where should your thumb go? Why is there, why is there this button on the bottom? You know, and just asking those general questions and, but it, it probably started just by the simple questions, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so, I mean, so talk about that. I mean, talk about your, your process and in terms of like, how do you approach a new, a new project that you're working on? What's, what are the steps that you use that you find have been successful for you? You know, I remember in the early parts of my career, a lot of people used to geek out on sketches and they think, you know, people who, who graduated from, you know, really from pretty much any type of art school or design school, had always had these rules. Like you can't break, you can't use an underlay. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't, you know, this is the way you're supposed I'm sitting there like, wow, man, like I thought you got into design to have all these rules. And I was so blown away by all these rules and, and people would be, you know, on pedestals because they could illustrate so well. And then I met Tom Ruth from FY design and he has probably some of the worst sketches, you know, and he'll probably even say it to you. He, his sketches are, are for him to understand only. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, but he produces some of the best garment, if not the best garments, you know, that are made in the outdoor space. But he taught me how to break. I don't know if he taught me, but he definitely validated it's okay to break all those rules because you take somebody like him and he's doing some amazing things today. And to watch what he produced out of his own shop and for somebody who didn't necessarily have those formal rules and then self-taught himself a lot, a lot of what he knows, um, it kind of, you know, opened the doors for me because I was pretty young when I met him. Um, and so what it helped me do is just really get down to the physical objects, you know, when it came down to prototyping and, and that's, you know, that's obviously just a tool at that point, but when it gets into design, it depends on the brand. Um, if a brand has a long-term history, I really like to study the history. I really like to just dive in deep there before I even start the project. Um, if a brand's kind of new, one thing I really try to grab a hold of on my checklist is the design language. And um, I'm really not trying to instill my, my uh, you know, I don't necessarily think I have a style, but I'm not trying to instill my impression of what I think that brand should be. I'm trying to kind of become a part of that brand so I can kind of contribute to it. And when I step into that process, I don't want it to look like the products that I've worked on where, Oh, those must've been designed by Douglas. I just want it to be like, wow, that's really a good, you know, X, Y, Z product. And, um, without having to have any type of, you know, signature to it. And so with that, you know, you, that's, that's one component. Then the other component too, is when you get briefed out on the project is trying to understand the business model behind it. Um, I really like to take a dive into the finance side and I, I try to understand if it's a pre-existing um, product. And if we're only, you know, if we're introducing a new product to kind of take out that old product, it's trying to understand the, the life cycle of that old product and how it, how it sold through and, you know, kind of the feedback and kind of get up to speed there. Now, if it's a completely new product and it's, you know, based off a problem that needs to be solved and nobody has solved it, um, then you start start from ground zero and you just start asking questions. Um, especially, you know, if it's a product that's going to save somebody's life, you need to know all the restraints and kind of what's what's inside that box that you're willing or you're able to work within, and then spell that out or you know visualize that a little bit for everybody to kind of understand in your group and take that next step. And that next step is when you start really, um, for at least the groups I've worked in is being able to brainstorm around, um, specific solutions and then, you know, trying to build up, um, any type of mock prototypes always help, you know, anything, if they're just tools to help make a, help make a decision. Um, but really being able to just focus on and take a step back, you know, um, from your own thoughts a little bit and being able to kind of, you know, have people around you who are really going to call bullshit on you. 
and um, and it, but you also appreciate kind of their point of view and maybe what they're going to bring to that conversation. And you've designed for a lot of really well-known brands, you know, big, small, different sizes and whatnot, a lot of product, a lot of bags, a lot of uh, accessories, whatnot. What are a couple of things that you're most proud of? I'd probably say one project I'm really proud of is being, um, you know, the lead on a project at the North Face uh, for the Maru Expedition. I'm proud of it just because everyone didn't want to do it. Why is that? Why didn't people want to do it? Well, I think because it wasn't on the project list. It wasn't on, um, you know, there wasn't a monetary um, goal, you know, like it, financially it just wasn't supposed to be there. And um, and I think people were kind of short-sighted or maybe people were burned out too. You know, I think the group I was in was definitely quite a few people were burned out and they were just like, oh, not another project, you know? And for me, I just knew having the experience of working with um, Jerome at Mage Design, we'd worked on a lot of projects that no one had ever asked us to go and um, work on, you know? I mean, we created complete new categories for brands that they didn't even know that they should be thinking about. But we'd sketch up these books, we'd make a, um, a complete deck of you know, product and design the products all the way to tech packs and submit them to a lot of the times we just submit them straight to the owner. And, you know, the owner was sometimes shocked. And so I learned from that experience that if you, you know, it's kind of that old phrase, if you build it, you know, they'll, they'll come and it really works, you know, and in that situation, I had had a conversation with Conrad Anchor at, um, at Tahoe at the first sales meeting. And he'd asked me, he's like, have you ever worked on a portal edge? And, I, and, um, and somehow the conversation got broke up. And so I never had to answer that question. <laughs> and it was awesome because like all of a sudden he was just like, what were we talking about? I'm like, oh, the portal edge. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he started sketching it out of like what he wanted, you know. He's like, I want to, I want to be able to stand up in it. And I want to be able to do this. And at that point, I really knew nothing about a portal edge, you know, outside of like the definition of what it was. And um, but I knew I was I was. I don't know. I was just hungry, you know? And so I was just like, let's do this. And then, um, and some of the conversation that had come back from Conrad was that their, uh, payload was pretty heavy on the, on the, the previous expedition. They had tried it twice. And so this was that we're working on for the third time. And so for us, we really wanted to tackle the, um, equipment point of view and really focus on how much we could really affect on the payload. And so we made some camera bags, and the camera bags were by far the lightest camera bags that have ever been made. And, you know, we used some of the most premium foams you could use, fabrics, patterning, everything was really um, to spec. And Jimmy was really a part of that process. Ezra um, Lang was actually the, the key designer on that project. You know, so you're just having to think through all the different equipment and how you can make it lighter, basically, and, and make sure that it still works. And so being able to go through that whole experience and especially seeing w the failures too, because we definitely got feedback on what didn't work, you know, and, and what we really had to think about. And, um, but going through that and then really seeing the team come out the other end and after hearing the expedition had, you know, they had summited and then having those guys come back and really, you know, um, Jimmy and Conrad and Renan, like giving high fives to, to the, just to the group that had all worked on those items. But I don't think even till like, I, I bet you didn't hit them until this last year when the movie came out that, wow, I did that, you know? And, but for me, I just saw such a, um, I don't know. I just had a vision and I just realized like that was it. And <clears throat> when I came into the North face, the first thing I had ever did was have the team print out all the catalogs we had a um about a 200 foot wall inside one of the hallways and i had asked them to print out every single catalog page on the wall and then we were going to map it with yarn so we mapped it, all the products that basically um a timeline of key products not every single product but definitely key products that were um influential at that time and then we kind of you know identified it put a little story towards those products and tried to understand their lifestyle of either why they continued or why they were, um, expired, you know, and, or dropped from the, from the line. Yeah. 
and being able to do that, that kind of helped educate us all, you know, so we're all working as a team. We're all working with the same information, same conversation, same dialogue, same DNA, and you're able to kind of move forward. And that was pretty remarkable, you know, just to kind of be able to have that chemistry. So when you're able to go through that experience and really see it work, and then you see the designers like really step up to the plate, you're able to kind of, you know, you've done your job, you know, like I was, I, I literally did my job. And so I was like, all right, cool. What's next? We needed as a group to get confidence in ourselves. We needed to start playing like a team. We needed to start relying on each other. We needed to start trusting each other. And there wasn't any of that when I came aboard. And that was one thing I really wanted to focus on um, because, you know, you're not working as an independent designer. You're working on teams. And that's one thing a lot of um, students don't understand when they come out of college or they're coming out of whatever situation is that it's a team environment. It's a team. Like in order to design the best product, you need the best team. And, um, and you need to identify who your key role players are going to be. And some people aren't going to like those positions that they're playing, but that's the position that they're really good at. And that was, um, you know, I would say that's definitely one of my strengths is being able to identify key roles for people to play, you know, on that team. (laughs) I mean, I really like that exercise that you, that you were talking about where you printed out the catalog pages and then had to map all the products with yarn. I just love the, the physicality of that and, uh, and the fact that it involved the whole team. I think that's, that's a great exercise. You should have seen it. I've seen it on the wall and it took up quite a large wall of a very big hallway and it was quite detailed and a lot of different colors. And I mean, it was, it was incredibly impressive, I have to say. Yeah. So great. Um, you know, one of the things you know, you've talked about before and you were mentioning earlier is how uh, music has served as an inspiration. And I just wanted to ask, you know, how do you, how do you channel that inspiration into the work design work that you do? I'm not really sure how I channel music into it, but I definitely, I'm so influenced by rap music. It's like ridiculous how influenced I am. I I just, you know, I don't know if it's because where I grew up, but like ever since I was like 10 years old, I always wanted to be a rapper, which I'm definitely not a rapper and I can, I can't rap at all, you know? And so, but what I was always kind of impressed about was just how the DJs were bringing so they were pulling so much music from different areas, right? And they're and they're being able to create these beats that maybe they pulled off an old blues album or an old funk album or you know just whatever, and being able to create that, and then being able to have a lyricist come on top of that and start start rapping, and then being able to just make that into like this, you know, this. I don't know what you would call it, but it was just like a cultural mash, basically, you know, and seeing how that's progressed over time. And it's been one genre of music, right? Like you can't really say like you can say rock has, but like there really hasn't been another Led Zeppelin and there hasn't been another Guns N' Roses. And the bands that have kind of come in there, they kind of come and gone. But you always hear like they'll never be. I always hear these. um, I hear people always say they'll never be another Led Zeppelin, like Led Zeppelin or the Beatles. But then you have somebody who comes out like Kanye or, you know, Jay-Z or, you know, whoever, you know, like in, in that context of, of rap music. And like, well, they've just created the next Run DMC, you know, they just created the next Beastie Boys. They just created the next Wu-Tang Clan. But then you look at, you know, the people who have influenced that industry um, all the way back from, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and then where we're at today. That's always inspired me. And then also um, lots of dance hall reggae, you know, is, is like if you come into my studio, it's either in my headphones, I'm playing Shade 45 and in the morning it's Sway in the morning or in the afternoon it's Rude Jude. And I'm not really sure how it gets reflected in there into actual design, but it definitely has always been inspiring. It's always been, you know, a key key point of my environment. I think it's important for any designer to be relevant and to stay relevant. Well, do you see parallels between the music you listen to and the process of that and your design process? Uh, yeah, for sure. I would say Jay-Z, you know, on the way that he, um, I don't know if you've ever watched any type of movies on Jay-Z, but it's like, he kind of goes into this full like Rain Man effect at the beginning. And um, he just listens to music and he listens to like the beats, 
and and I Jay Z, correct me if you're if I'm wrong here, but um, but basically he listens to the beats at least from what I've seen, and he kind of closes his eyes and he starts mumbling and kind of making noise, and you know he doesn't write down anything, and eventually he just like jumps into the music box and um, starts recording and just starts spitting out just incredible lyrics, you know, without without a notepad. I have another friend up in um, oh, he used to live in Malibu, now he lives in Big Bear. This guy Michael Eaton, he's he's kind of a ghost. Um, he's a ghost writer for a lot of uh, rap artists and a lot of. Um, he's also a beat maker, and I've been inside his studio before, and he's very similar. Where he's just creating all this crazy noise, or he'll have me like have a microphone going on over here, and then he'll tell me to tap on something or bang on something or start playing the piano, you know. And but what he pulls out of it is pretty amazing, and then all of a sudden he just creates these, you know, these these beats and. Um, and starts cleaning it up after a while, but being able to see that so organic and, um, you know, cause these guys aren't coming in like, you know, brainstorming and saying, Hey, this is going to be the consumer. And this is going to be like, that's so formulaic after a while, you know, and right. they don't have the get how post-it works. notes up on the wall. Yeah. You know, and I get how that works for a, for a certain point, but then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> I'm picturing like Jay-Z the- and post-it notes. Yeah, exactly. I doubt Jay-Z sitting in there just going, all right, cool. So I'm going to, sing for this demographic and (laughs) at this point i'm gonna have this beat you know and like and so there's an artistic side to it but at the same time they're treating it like a business you know it's not like those guys don't want to make money it's a business to them but they're doing it from more of an organic point of view versus a formulaic point of view and um you might have really good results you know with the formula but at the same time it'll probably feel pretty stale and um and a lot of those do you know you could tell when something's done in that in that type of environment of a brainstorm and, you know, the identifying the consumer and we've put 5,000 post-it notes on something and, you know, and, and like, I get it, you know, I, you are doing it to a point, but at the same time, you kind of have to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit loose too. Yeah. Well, what would you say is the difference then between a good designer and a great designer? You know, a great designer is like somebody who's humble, right? Somebody you can ask questions, somebody you can admit defeat. When when most designers quit or most people quit in general, that is their starting point. That's sometimes what makes a great designer. You know, like right when a person's burned out or they're just like, there's no way I'm going on anymore or I've exhausted everything. Like to me, that's just the warm up. Great. You've just exhausted all the ideas that are typically on the top of your head. Then it's like, okay jump into now let's start using our brain you know let's start really using not just ourselves but the team that you're working with and um and identifying that you are working with other people um i don't know if that necessarily answers the the question but i do know that being able to um take a step back and realize that you're working with other human beings that are working on a similar or working on the same solution, but being able to um, know when you need to press on the gas too, you know, and, and maybe not everybody else, not, maybe not everybody else has their seatbelts on and are ready for that ride. But at the same time, you got to step up and um, just press on the gas, especially when everybody's about to quit. Yeah. That reminds me of that quote of uh, Muhammad Ali's, I think it was when um someone was asking him about doing sit-ups or something. And, you know, he said, oh, I do, you know, whatever the number was, but I don't start counting until it, until it starts hurting. You yeah. know, it's like that, that's the point that everyone else is giving up and quitting, but that's the point that he starts counting, and that's where he starts from. That's his starting point. And I think that's a really great attitude to have and, and that relentlessness and that, that um, stick-to-itiveness when other people are, are giving up is, is extremely critical. Absolutely. You look at every brand out there, every project out there that's been great. It's also always been with a group of people that probably have almost quit, but they didn't quit. They're the ones who continued with it. You know, like Nike could have quit. No doubt they could have quit. You know, I'm not sure if you guys have listened to, um, listened to, uh, Phil Knight's book or read it. Um, but like, you know, there's plenty of times that he could have quit. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of hear how that team evolved over the years. You know, I'm sure at Adidas, they could have quit. Apple could have quit. You know, all these brands could have quit, but 
always go back and it's the people who didn't never quit and the people who, you know, maybe there was one visionary person who just was the driver, but at the same time, it also took the rest of the team to help, you know, get that, that project to, uh, yeah. to execute. Con- yeah. Conrad and Jimmy and Renan could have quit. And, uh, yeah. you know, watching that movie, I saw that recently and, uh, you know, I was around when they, you know, didn't make one of their other, their other trips and, <laughs> went through a lot to get up there. Yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you were saying before about the, the kind of the empathy that's required to, you know, to realize that you're, it's not just a solo show, but that you're working on a team, you're working with other people that have their own kind of skills and backgrounds and experiences that they're bringing to the table too. And to be able to not only work effectively with them, but to enable them to empower them to do their best work is really important. And I think that's something that, that's, that, you know, that you've talked about before is like, you know, the teaching that you've been doing. And, uh, and now that you, you started to teach the workshops at your studio, um, wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about, about how those have been going. Yeah. Listen, you know, design is not easy. I'm not sure if that gets missed on the different schoolings that people are getting. But it, it's hard. It's gritty. It's grind. You know, there's a grind to it, right? And you got to have a spine to it. Um, you know, I shared a lot of stories earlier just about teams and, um, and and groups of people that you're working with. But at the same time, you know, I've always been brought on to those teams to be a bull. And I'm the person that you definitely don't want to go up against if you're going to be holding a project back. And it's not because it's like I'm going to go after you type of thing. It's just that I'm not going to take no as an answer. And the one thing that I identified with a lot of students when I was teaching, um, I was teaching uh, a couple years back is that there was, I didn't meet a whole lot of students that had a spine. You know, I think out of the, the three or four terms that I, I, I taught, there was one student that really stood out to me um, the most. And, you know, once I learned about, their background and their family life and their parents and how their parents raised them. It it made sense to me. And the one thing I wanted to be able to do, and I just identified because I've worked with so many different designers, um, that I wanted to build people up. I wanted to people, I wanted to build people up with the right tools and some of the tools that they're being given in school, um, were great for, for one step of the process. But you also need to know how to look through a financial lens, you know, from a business lens, from a sourcing lens. And that element is what's left out in school. And um, and I meet these designers who, you know, they get stuck in these meetings and next thing you know, you have a sourcing director, you know, just schooling them and tooling costs. And the designers there just looking at them with a blank face, you know, and just like, what is a tooling cost or what's amor- how do I amortize something, you know? And so like, they're just so scared. And I was like, you know what? I need to, I need to teach these people, you know, because I didn't go to school. There's not a school that can even teach you some of the things that I've learned as in, and I'm not saying like I'm this well-rounded designer, but like the reality is it works for me, you know, and it works for, um, it works for a few people. And, and so how do you build off that? And if they're not getting that at school, they're already missing out on probably the other 75% of their job, which is, um, which is key in order for their success. And so, you know, I have designers that have worked with me and they say that I'm really tough. And, um, I've had managers who've, who've told me, um, they're like, you know, I'm so glad you're on my team because you see all my blind spots. Um, and I've had senior managers come up to me saying, like, we know you're totally underqualified, but we love the fact that you have so much drive and we know that you're going to um, tackle the problem in front of you. And that, I mean, literally, that was, you know, the opening line when I got hired for the North Face because I was totally underqualified for the job, not having um, any history in the outdoor space. And... Um, but they, they had trust in me and they believed in me. And so I took that and I, I, I built on that platform and designers don't realize of how much, how hard it is to work within that middle layer and to really, you know, get a project that wasn't even supposed to be on the table. And it's going to be, it's going to cost you $250,000 in tooling costs. 
and um, and understanding where you're going to pull that money from out of a budget that you know because that budget's already been built the year before. Mm-hmm. So knowing how you can get creative over time and trying to figure out how to build this design plan, and then being able to go in and contribute on a design level, that I feel like that is what's going to make the designer going forward a little bit stronger. You know, design going forward is so much more based around business than it ever has been. Yeah, you have obviously old brands that have, you know, they're kind of still working like a mom and pop shop, but the brands that are really doing it right, um, you know, it's it's pretty apparent just in their financial, you know, earnings, you know, if they're a public company, but also if they're a private company, um, you can also see them, um, you know, growing pretty well with just the products that they're releasing. It's such a balance between uh, following rules and breaking rules. Yeah. You know, you see, because as you say, like with costing and all types of sourcing issues and whatnot, there are some rules or guidelines or things that you need to pay attention to and follow. And you need to know, you need to figure out what those are. But then as a designer, your job is also to know when to break the rules or move past them or stretch them or move the boundaries. And, you know, I think all of us have struggled with that. And I see uh, folks who come out of um, programs, design programs, or certain types of things that they were set up for, like, hey, I'm following the rules, this is supposed to happen for me. I think I've definitely fallen into that as well. But um, knowing when you can break those, or should be, or challenge them, or put yourself at risk, put yourself at risk for your team. Absolutely. I mean, that that is part of the design problem, right? Yeah. You know, like, the design problem is finance. The design problem is sourcing. The design problem is sales. The design problem is, you know, the team. Those are all part of the, you know, those aren't on the syllabus when you're going to school, right? And so, but those are the other key, you know, um, components to that design problem. And if you're only learning through one lens and then all of a sudden you get into a job in the real world and all of a sudden it's, wow, I never learned anything about these four other components and they're intense. And, you know, maybe your manager doesn't have the experience either. That's a real, um, that's a real miss, you know, it's a real gap in, in kind of the, the ladder of how things are supposed to be working. Um, at the same time, you know, you might have those success stories too, that, you know, who who cares about those things? Mm -hmm. You kind of rebel against it, you know, so you can always go the other way too. Um, that hasn't been, that hasn't happened for me in my, my experience, but, um, good on you if that does work for you. <laughs> you know, I grew up, like I was saying in this culture where you just can't fake it. You know, I hear so many kids talking about like fake it to make it. It's like, you know what? You can't fake skateboarding. Like I'll know if somebody could skateboard, like just by the way they push by the way, not even, maybe even by the way they're picking up their skateboard and you're never going to be able to fake it, you know? And so it's like, get that out of your vocabulary. Like, cause I didn't fake it. I never faked anything, you know, it just, I was actually, if anything, I was more humble and I just listened and I, I, um, had really great mentors around me and I still do have those mentors. And some of them are, you know, my good friends today and, um, or my children's godparents, you know, and those, those people are the people who've helped shape me. And I owe so much to those people because, they're the ones who took, who had the patience, you know, to learn from my mistakes or had the patience to teach me. And, um, and a lot of the people that I surround myself around aren't from the design world. They're mostly from the finance world. And, um, because I want to learn more about the, for me, I want to learn more about business, you know? And, um, I think Mark Parker has always been a big inspiration to me just because his background was footwear design. And, um, knowing kind of what he's gone on to do, it's just like, you know, it's, it's a bigger lens. And so you can work on bigger projects. That's key, you know, and you need to, sometimes you need to be surrounded around yourself, around people who don't quit too. You know, I, I surround myself around, um, lots of athletes, um, you know, who are professional athletes. Um, funny enough, like I surround myself by a, lo- a lot of people who are into CrossFit, you know, and I say that in a humorous way just because, Everybody knows that people who do CrossFit just love to talk about CrossFit, you know, and, um, but they're some of my best friends because they are intense. I don't know if anybody's ever done a CrossFit class, but they, they ruin you, you know, if, if you've never exercised really. 
And uh, I learned that firsthand. And But at the same time, I like to be around people who are really trying to be successful and um, with themselves and then also professionally. Well, on a final note, what plans can you share um, about the future of the brown buffalo? Yeah, so, you know, there was... Um, you guys probably well are well aware of like the whole current trend of no so right, and then um, there's the you know it's replacing the conversation around 3D printing, and before that it's you know 3D printing kind of replaced the conversation around craftsmanship, and you know the list goes on of which each one kind of replaces. Um, I personally think everybody's looking in the wrong way in the wrong areas, but you know. Um, but so be it, you know, if, if no, so is the trend right now. And, you know, I think almost every company out there is trying to look at some kind of no, so type of garment, um, or product. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of trying to take a step about 10 steps ahead of that. And I'm really trying to look at it from an engineering point of view. And, you know, I've really been inspired by, um, Tesla and, and, um, a lot more about the German manufacturers, um, who are just using a lot of robotics, um, and I'm really trying to just focus a little bit around that. Um, you know, that's, a, that's one component to it. The other component, too, is, is also um, designing a few products that are really simply designed um, and just really well executed. And I know that's being a super vague. Um, but the big thing that I think long term is really trying to look at manufacturing, like in the future and what that looks like. And um, I know there's quite a few people out there trying to mess around with that. And that's kind of where I try to spend my day thinking. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you. This has been uh, excellent as usual. Yeah. Thank you so much, um, Sam and Michelle. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's honestly a privilege just to be involved with anything that you guys um, put on these days. So mm, thank um, thanks you. for thinking of me. Oh, thank you for being part. share some of my thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> This podcast is a project of Structure Event, the creative conference for the active outdoor and urban design industry. For more information about the podcast or the conference, check out our website at structureevent.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends. Thanks for listening.